Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, uh, did you see the latest issue of Washingtonian? You mean Nazi? Shane's former employer? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't miss one. <laughs> there, there was a really interesting little feature in there. So this is the style section of the power politics of Washington. Mm. So it's a list of influential people in different categories, including legal intelligentsia. Ooh, Ooh fancy. And who was on that list, Tammy? Oh, no one we know. Just Benjamin Winters. <gasps> ben Amazing. Winters. Stylish legal intelligence. Wait, Look was this a him. style award or a brain award? I just wanted on the record that I in no way nominated myself. Had anybody nominated Did you buy me, an ad? Uh, influence. I did not pay for presents. I didn't know it was coming out until people started uh, tweeting at me about it. I just want to know what it takes to be publicly named as a member of the intelligentsia. I imagine like purple silk robes and yes. an induction yes. ceremony. And salon. Yes. This is, though, for us, perfect because it's exactly the kind of thing that makes Ben cringe the absolute most. And yet people will now congratulate him about it all the time, Thank making you. it the perfect thing for us to troll him about really forever, guys. We are going to get so much mileage out of this. And thank, thank you, you Washingtonian, Washingtonian Magazine. Bless you. <laughs> From the three of us, yeah. minus Ben. <laughs> Anti-congratulations to you, Ben. Thank you, Tammy. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Confirm and Deny edition. Uh, I'm Shane Harris. I don't know of any intelligentsia I'm a part of. I can't confirm or deny that I have been on this show. I can't. And <laughs> that you've been maligned by Washingtonian magazine. I can't. Con- <laughs> I, I, I'm just. I can't confirm or deny any of it. I'm glomaring all questions today. Oh, excellent. <laughs> this ought to be fun. This will make for a really interesting hour. <laughs> oh my gosh, Ben, you should be very proud of yourself. We're very proud of you on a daily basis. I wish they would have come and done like a photo shoot of you in the hammock with the dog shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, here's your legal intelligentsia, Washington. You know, there was a time when there was going to be a photo shoot in my office. Uh, this was back a, a while ago. And Susan was so appalled by the condition of my office that she organized some people to come in before the photo shoot and clean it up against my will. Technically, I just removed scattered papers that might have confidential information from your desk. And it turned out that in the process of removing those, things got a little tidy. Yeah. It's good. It was great. Some like dead plants were moved. Some bookshelves were put back upright. Some surfaces were dusted. It was lovely. It was to be lovely. fair, Ben's plants are lush and healthy. Not I anymore. I'm the They're resident plant murderer. They're so dead. They're all dead. Oh my god, oh, that's so guys, sad. that's so sad. I am well. I am here in the remote jungle plantless studio because <clears throat> we can't have plants anymore. With uh, yeah. my good friends, the intelligentsia of Ben Wittes, Tamarkoff, and Wittes, and Susan Hennessy. Hi, everybody. Hi. Hi. You guys, we'll get on a Washingtonian list soon enough. Don't, I, want, I don't want you to worry. I know we're feeling really left out right now, but <laughs> I think there's going to be. What if I get listed for, Shane? <laughs> I don't know. We should have, like, act. This is good. Listeners, tweet at us of what Washingtonian list you think me and Tammy and Susan would be good so, for. Actually, I got picked for their 40 under 40. Did last really? year, and then it got canceled by COVID. 
And like, like the photo shoot thing was supposed Cancel to be culture, like the right day there. that they closed everything down. Oh, oh yeah. you were robbed, Susan. Robbed. That's glossy. All right. Well, so hopefully this will go back to normal before I turn 41 and I'm <laughs> excluded from all lists forever. Thank, thank you for reminding everyone that you're still under 40. Yes, yeah, seriously. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Significantly under four. Long, long <laughs> oh, way to oh, go. Good. Yeah, excellent. excellent. Great, I'm great. under 100 under 100 list. <laughs> That's my... 90 <laughs> under 90. <laughs> still alive. Oh, God. All right. On the podcast this week, you guys, President Biden, he's definitely on some lists someplace. Uh, his nominees for Attorney General and CIA Director mostly sail through their confirmation hearings. The administration kickstarts policy on Iran with an eye towards salvaging a nuclear deal. And the Supreme Court rules that a New York grand jury can see Donald Trump's tax returns. Let us start with the, the confirmation hearings. There have been two big ones this week. Merrick Garland for Attorney General, as well as Bill Burns for CIA Director. I am fresh off listening to that hearing. Ben, get us started with Garland, uh, and I'll talk about Burns in a bit. What were the high points of the hearing and what did it tell us about the kind of attorney general Garland uh, will be, presuming he will be confirmed? Yeah, he will be confirmed. I think the only question is whether there will be 20 Republican votes to confirm him or 40 Republican votes to confirm him. But he's going to get confirmed with some substantial no amount of Republican support. The hearing was, by and large, uh, very cordial. Nobody staked out significant ground against him. The major point of contention in the hearing, to the extent that there was one, was how Garland means to handle the John Durham investigation, which is to say the investigation of the Russia investigation. Uh, Republican senators serially wanted to get him to commit himself to handling it the way Bill Barr committed himself to handling the Mueller investigation, which is to say committed himself to uh, letting Durham finish his work and giving him full support and all that. And Garland uh, left himself some room on that score and specifically adjured that he had not yet been briefed and didn't anticipate any problems in this regard, but didn't want to make any promises before he understood the parameters of the investigation. What does it say about what kind of attorney general he will be? He showed a lot of the earnestness that has uh, won him a lot of admirers on in his judicial capacity, as well as a lot of institutional savvy about the Justice Department, where he has been a senior official and a line official uh, for many years. He showed a lot of seriousness about counterterrorism in general, and particularly about domestic uh, white supremacist terrorism. And he showed a lot of moral seriousness and interest in democracy protection issues of the sort that we have talked a lot about on this show. So I think he's given a lot of a lot of indication about what the priorities of the department will be, sort of domestic terrorism, civil rights, and sort of restoration of the norms and normal order of the department. And I think he's uh, he did himself no harm in the hearing and did himself a lot of good in terms of making clear that he is sort of the real deal that people like me have been saying for a while he is. Yeah, so um, I, I agree with all of that. I um, I only watched sort of bits and pieces of the hearing throughout the day, um, you know, but there I think it really um, hammered home sort of why Garland was kind of an inspired choice by Biden um, and that 
even in the moments in which, uh, you know, Ben referred to the Republican senators uh, asking questions from an alternate universe, um, sort of this Fox News information ecosystem, um, even in those moments, it was really uh, remarkable that Garland was able to hold a rapport um, and actually have sort of in, uh, respectful engagement with these senators. And uh, like it or not, that is going to be key to the restoration project. Um, this is not just going the, the sort of the task of the new attorney general is not just going to be to go in and launch investigations and, and knock heads together and uh, you know tell Republicans what's what. They're going to have to rebuild a meaningful bipartisan oversight relationship. And um, there are very, very few people you know who are plausible for this job that could start sort of day one as well regarded by Republicans. And I thought even in the somewhat tense moments, that was uh, really, really on display. Um, I'm a little bit surprised that he didn't spend uh, more time sort of speaking to the men and women of the Justice Department in particular. Um, he gave a little bit of time uh, sort of in his opening statements, um, but that's been such a pervasive issue of the last four years, just kind of the degradations of the workforce. Also fear, right? The idea that if you, you know, any individual line attorney at DOJ that happened to get looped into something that uh, uh, caught the president's attention could have their career and individual life sort of destroyed in a moment or, um, you know, be wrapped up in in this kind of right wing insanity. Um, and so, uh, you know, there were some sort of coded references to that and, and a lot of discussion about sort of returning to the core principles of, of the department. But I was a little bit surprised to not see him take that on more directly, although, of course, it's a little bit in tension with the project of uh, maintaining good relationships with the Republicans. And so, uh, look, there's 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 zero chance he's not going to be confirmed. He may even be confirmed sort of unanimously or close to it. Um, but I'll be really interested also to see what his sort of first address as attorney general looks like and what uh, he's saying to people inside the building, because um, I think that's going to be as interesting and significant a message as what he was talking about with members of Congress yesterday. This is an interesting point because, you know, I think we've seen Tony Blinken struggle a little bit with the balance here, too. You come in with a kind of a set of burning fires on the policy front and stuff that you really want to move out on quickly. But you also have this traumatized workforce that, if nothing else, has been following the guidance of the previous administration, which really... Uh, used a heavy hand in enforcing its guidance on the workforce. And so even if they're not, you know, so demoralized that they're facing challenges, both from COVID and, and from Trump's leadership, they're still just struggling to adapt to the voice and direction of a new administration. And so how much energy do you put toward the internal versus the external? And for Blinken, I think this has also been a real challenge. That's actually a really good entry point into talking about Burns, because one of the things that I think he did really effectively and arguably was the top topic of conversation in his hearing with the Senate Intelligence Committee today was coming in and saying, I am here to support the CIA workforce. And he emphasized it on two key points. One was making sure that politics does not interfere with intelligence and making you know very clear that you know we're the, the backdrop of that obviously is the past 4 years in which Donald Trump was on a fairly consistent basis at war with the intelligence community largely over his belief that they were trying to politically undermine him so sort of getting the poison out of the system and that's something that Burns not only said he wanted to do he said it was the first thing that Biden told me he wanted when he asked me to take on this job was to make sure the politics does not interfere with intelligence. And the other thing that he did, which was much more specific, is pledge, I think he said, to make it an extraordinarily high priority, were the words he used, to get to the bottom of these mysterious illnesses and these brain traumas that some intelligence personnel and diplomats have suffered and uh, what some believe is a kind of attack using some sort of microwave weapon or some exotic weapon by Russia at various diplomatic posts around the world. This has been given the name the Havana Syndrome because there were attacks at the diplomatic facility in Cuba. He kept recurring back to that and lawmakers kept asking him about it. Uh, and, and I understand that there has been 
uh, well, there has been a lot of conversation, let's just say, uh, among former officials conveying on this issue that they did not believe that Gina Haspel and the CIA leadership and the Trump administration gave them the proper care they needed. They couldn't get access to treatment programs at places like Walter Reed. Burns specifically mentioned that, by the way, saying, I'm going to make sure they can get to Walter Reed. Uh, Mark Polymeropoulos, who's been on Ben's show on Blue of Fund, and it was written about in GQ, has written a lot about this and I think reflects the views of a lot of former CIA officers who, like him, have been made ill, they think, by this, that they're looking to Burns to basically come in and back up the workforce. And if there's one like sort of key lesson that a CIA director can learn about how you succeed, it's by backing up the workforce, right? Leon Panetta came in never having held a position in the intelligence community, just like Bill Burns, but like Bill Burns being a major Washington player. And the first thing he did was back up the workforce and talk about making sure that people were protected, for instance, from uh, not having their careers injured or legal action being taken because they may have been involved in controversial programs in the past with the agency. And the agency loved him. Uh, And you can do that when you're not a policymaker, right? To Tammy's point, when you don't necessarily have a lot of fires burning, you can kind of come in to a confirmation hearing and say, I'm going to back up the people. It was also interesting to me that lawmakers asked him a lot about that and that they also, though, wanted his views on policy and at times felt like a confirmation hearing for Secretary of State and not CIA Director. And Burns kind of had to diplomatically, if you'll pardon the pun, remind them, as CIA Director, I don't make policy. I support people who do. But here's what I think about China and Russia. Go ahead, Susan. <laughs> yeah, so actually, on that point, I, I am sort of curious for others' thoughts. I, I think it's a, it's almost a little bit, not disingenuous, but um, of course, the CIA director is incredibly influential in policy. And actually, one of the significant things about picking somebody with a State Department background is kind of one of the core tensions of the intelligence community. And one of the core tensions between places like the CIA and the State Department is uh, who is responsible for policy, sort of uh, where are the the boundaries uh, defined. And so in a sense, um, even to hear Burns say, this is an intelligence you know, gathering organization and sort of produce information and it's not for us to make policy, it's for others to make policy. That itself actually, I thought, was sort of a significant part of um, sort of nodding to where he might be of, of saying, no, 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 I'm I'm not here to uh, you know expand the CIA's empire within sort of the U.S. national security apparatus uh, a little bit. I thought it was him saying, I'm here to ensure that they do the job they're supposed to do and sort of stay focused and, and stay within their lane. And um, I, I wonder a little bit um, how how that was heard, you know, within the CIA and within the agency, whether or not that was, you know, hey, I'm just backing up the workforce and um, and it was a welcome message, or if instead it was a little bit of a coded, like, uh, you know, there's a new sheriff in town, it's no longer Gina Haspel, somebody who grew up in the building and has all sort of the, uh, the sympathies and belief of the unique capacity for CIA to understand and uh, contribute to per- certain questions and, and sort of issues. Um, I, I, I'm just, I'm sort of curious how people heard that. I'm here to keep the CIA out of the policy space so that when I become Secretary of State, <laughs> the, the, the agency leaves me my turf. <laughs> this is, you and Shane really seem to have a, a strong sense of Ambassador Bill Burns's ambitions. His title is Ambassador Bill Burns, <laughs> not like spy versus spy Bill Burns. But, you know, it's like there's also a sense that I got that the message I think and I'm just in talking here and there to people just today is also, yeah, we don't want to do policy. We're all about like, you know, let's go out and do operations. Let's spy on people. Let's get back to that. Oh, and by the way, it is awesome that you are close to the president and will keep us in the Oval Office because that's how we do politics at the CIA. Right. right? It is yeah. Susan's point of point. I mean, it, it's kind of crazy to think that the CIA director doesn't have a role in policymaking in that sense. But it's all about that relationship with the principal. And Bill Burns not only has a relationship with the president, he has a very strong relationship with the national security advisor, with the secretary of state. Uh, and those are the key people that he would need to have it with and has a strong relationship with the DNI as well. But, you know, you're talking about a guy who goes back right so far 
and who the CIA, I mean, the, you know, you had the number two from the uh, operations directorate who he talks about in his memoir, you know, coming out and giving us statements saying Bill Burns knows the building. I mean, like, it's like, it's like the DO is already like crowned this guy, like the greatest director that we've had in years. And there's a lot of animosity towards Gina Haspel right now in that building too. So people are ready for a fresh start. Yeah. I mean, that's all fascinating, but I think going to the question Susan raised, like our expectations going to be too high or, you know, if he's seen as such an overarching, you know, the man for the moment in policy making terms as well, to what extent will he own responsibility if things don't go down the way his analysts predict or the way he communicates that his analysts predict? That's an issue for Merrick Garland, too. I mean, he is going to be greeted at the Justice Department as a conquering hero. There are a lot of people in that building who remember when he served there. There are a lot of people in that building who have practiced in front of him as a judge, a role in which he is quite revered. And he's going to show up and, you know, the problems of the Justice Department are not skin deep. And the first time uh, the Justice Department does something like, oh, say, indicting the former president, uh, that Republicans or well short of that, that Republicans are going to characterize as political, you know, what happens to the sort of Merrick Garland sheen at that point? And I I think it's a very similar dynamic. Well, let's talk about uh, switch from switch from, I should say, the the triumph of hope to the reality of experience and talk (laughs) about Iran. (laughs) Let's talk about Tony Blinken's great big shit sandwich that he gets to eat. So, Tammy, obviously, the Biden administration comes in, President Biden comes in, you know, with a lot of hopeful ambitions about returning to the nuclear agreement with Iran that President Trump canceled about trying to stabilize, you know, well, stabilize isn't even maybe that's even getting too far ahead of ourselves, but trying to improve the U.S. approach to Iran, uh, uh, ratcheting down the temperature, we can pick our metaphors. It's all easier said than done. But the administration is trying to kickstart that process now. Bill Burns was asked a little bit about it in his confirmation hearing, said Iran should not be allowed to possess a nuclear weapon. Of course, he was one of the negotiators of what became the JCPOA. So tell us where we are right now in terms broadly of our posture towards Iran, but also efforts to uh, improve relations and maybe start to salvage this nuclear agreement. So I think the first thing to keep in mind is that while we often talk about the fate of the JCPOA, the nuclear deal with Iran, in bilateral terms, U.S.-Iran, what can we do to improve U.S.-Iran ties? Can we have U.S.-Iran talks? It's not a bilateral agreement and it's not a bilateral issue. It's a global security issue. And the agreement was signed by the United States along with you know, a bunch of other international actors. And so I think that the Biden approach has been to signal a willingness to re-engage, but not to sort of put any incentives up front on that and to make clear that it's not in a rush. And the Iranians, um, for their part, you know, are trying to create a greater sense of urgency and also to make it more of a bilateral rather than a multilateral issue. So I think for the Biden administration, there are kind of at least three processes going on simultaneously. There's consultations with European partners and the P5 plus one, the others of the P5 plus one who signed the agreement. And you saw the Biden administration come out and say, we are willing to get together with the Europeans and all of us together re-engage diplomatically with Iran on the nuclear agreement. So that's kind of one avenue. And I think that the Europeans are very, very interested in trying to make that happen. Uh, A second avenue simultaneously is the beginning of American consultations with strategic partners in the region who are not at all excited about the prospect of uh, renewed negotiation with Iran. They weren't very excited about the nuclear deal before. And so you saw the Israeli government and the U.S. government, who are in very different places, 
agree this week to a bilateral committee to discuss Iran. In other words, we know we really disagree and we're going to do this behind closed doors so we don't have a public fight about it. And then simultaneously, there are some bilateral issues on Iran, um, and maybe they are creating some urgency for the Biden administration that it won't admit to. One is the number of American citizens, some of whom are dual U.S.-Iranian nationals who are in Iranian prison, who are essentially hostages to U.S.-Iran diplomacy. And there is a lot of pressure, I think appropriately, on the Biden administration to try and get those people out. Simultaneously, there's the fact that the that Iranian-linked militias in Iraq are continuing to shoot off rockets and missiles, both at bases in Iraq that host U.S. and international troops and over the past week at our embassy in Baghdad. And that's creating a sense of urgency to give the Iranians incentive to rein in their militias. Um, so I think Biden would like to look like he's not in a rush and this, the burden is on Tehran, but I think it's going to be hard to sustain. And I think it will be especially hard to sustain because there are confirmation hearings coming up in the Senate over the next few weeks, probably, for Biden appointees who were very involved in the first Iran deal, Colin Call as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy and Wendy Sherman as Deputy Secretary of State. And I think a lot of Republicans want to make those hearings referendums on the Iran nuclear deal. And Tammy, sort of, you know, one thing that's interesting, I think, is sort of the um, the battle for dueling narratives about uh, the position that Biden is in and the position that Biden inherited. So we're seeing uh, sort of Republicans talking about, you know, don't squander the leverage that has been built. Uh, you know, there's new opportunities in this space now. I, I think really trying to sort of create this perception that, you, you know, Biden is in a better position, uh, you know, on day one than, than Barack Obama was on the final day of his administration um, versus obviously, uh, you know, Democrats. Democrats trying to really hammer home, uh, you know, the real costs of, of withdrawing from the JCPOA, uh, you know, lack of uh, credibility and support with allies and partners. Where is the truth of all of that? Or sort of what's your perception on, OK, you know, these four years have happened. Um, we've talked about it iteratively over a number of weeks. But now that we're sort of over the past four years, but now that we're stepping back, like, what is your perception of the 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 progress or, or or the story of kind of where Biden is now versus where he was when Obama left office. I feel like we had conversations about this on the podcast when the JCPOA was first negotiated. That there are really two starkly different theories of the case in the Washington policy debate about Iran. One is that. The Iranians don't understand anything but pressure and force, and they're intransigent, implacable, determined to violate any agreement that you think you've got with them. And therefore, the only thing to do is squeeze them, squeeze them, squeeze them until their back's against the wall. That was the theory that the Trump administration attempted to implement without success. They did not force the Iranians back to the table on favorable terms and get a better deal, which is what Trump promised he would do. The other theory of the case has been that Iran, yes, is an ideological revisionist state. It is a state sponsor of terrorism, but it's not an irrational regime. And therefore, it is possible through the use of carrots and sticks and multilateral coalitions to compel it to make rational agreements to constrain its behavior. And that was the theory of the case under which the JCPOA was negotiated and signed. And so I think ultimately these two theories are irreconcilable. That's why this argument never gets resolved. But I would say that the, the Biden administration can make a pretty strong case that Trump tested the press them up against the wall theory and it failed. But, but in what sense did it fail? Because... You know, if Mike Pompeo were here, he would say, and granted, he would say it in some very sneering and unpleasant way. I'm going to say it in a pleasant way. He'd remind you about fudge. He'd remind us about his grandmother's fudge. You're better than that. Uh, he would tell me I'm better than that. 
Um, though he's really <laughs> wrong. You. I just want to say he's... Ben, you're a member of the legal intelligentsia. You're better yeah, than I cannot on. confirm or deny that. Um, he, I mean, he would say it didn't fail. We, we were in a position of weakness in 2017. We applied maximum pressure. And look what happened in the region. The Gulf states, uh, you know, came out of their, the, the closet in their relationship with Israel. The region is strong and united against Iran right now. And by the way, the Iranians, you know, everyone said they were going to have a temper tantrum when we pulled out of the JCPOA and killed Soleimani. And, you know, they made some noise that they didn't really do anything. And so the only problem is that you guys are insufficiently committed to this. Yeah, I I just think that that's an empirically unsustainable case when you have over 100 U.S. troops in Iraq injured by rocket attacks when you have the Iranians having um, broken through the constraints of the JCPOA to enrich enough nuclear material that they are only a few months away from having sufficient nuclear material for a bomb. And they waited a year after Trump's withdrawal from the agreement to start violating it themselves. But they have now been escalating their violations up to and including this week. So I'm not saying, you know, the Republican argument is, well, don't reward them for violations. And I think the Biden answer is we're not. We're making very clear they have to come back into compliance. But I don't think there's any question that that we have a worse Iranian nuclear problem, proliferation problem today than we did four years ago. And we have a worse American position in the Gulf than we did four years ago. And I think that's thanks to, quote, maximum pressure, unquote. But that's just my view. The CIA director doesn't make policy. <laughs> but you, I do want to ask you one last short question before we move on to the next segment. You noted all of the people who are going to be facing confirmation hearings, you know, Wendy Sherman, notably, who took part in the crafting of JCPOA. Why didn't Bill Burns get asked about it? I mean, you know, him and Jake Sherman were doing the back channeling. Not Jake Sherman. <laughs> it's like Jake Sherman. Jake Sullivan. <laughs> that would be amazing. <laughs> The super combination of the two by Jake Sherman. Let's hear about it. I mean, hey, you're right about it. But like, you know, I mean, I mean, was that just because they were sort of opening the doors to start having the conversations and weren't involved in the substance of part of it? Because you know, it seems to me like, I mean, you know, we're always describing Burns as one of the negotiators, and here he is in a position, by the way, that Mike Pompeo, uh, who ascribed to the other theory of the case once held. I'm curious why Burns didn't, you think, get more scrutiny for his role in it? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Shane. I mean, I I think Wendy Sherman was much more publicly associated with it because all of the photographs of the handshaking in, in Geneva was, was Ambassador Sherman and Secretary Kerry. Um, she was the, the lead of the delegation once it was out in the open, whereas Bill Burns, as you said, was doing the kind of behind the scenes meetings in in Oman. So that might be one reason. Another reason might be that wonderful, you know, but very, very typical congressional double standard, which is, you know, set a higher bar for women nominees. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of things that we just can't get over, Iran is an intractable problem. Apparently is. Misogyny in Congress is an intractable problem. (laughs) (laughs) We just can't quit Donald Trump. I can't quit you, Donald. Can't do it. Come on, Shane, fight. Have we had a Trump-free episode yet? I think we did. I think we did like a week or two ago. And I think it was like one of those days where we were like, shit, what are we going to talk about? (laughs) There's nothing really happening. We should have marked it. I feel like the first... Like the yeah. first rational security where the word where Trump is not even mentioned will be like a, wow. a historic turning point that they will I don't know. school children will study that episode in the future. I, mean, I know we've never had an episode about Jimmy Carter, but I think we do talk about former presidents, but not like this. Not like this, we don't. President Trump was back in the news this week because the Supreme Court has cleared the way for a New York prosecutor to obtain his tax returns. Uh, reading from CNN's reporting on this here, nearly a massive loss to Trump, who has fiercely fought to shield his financial papers 
from prosecutors. The documents will be subject to grand jury secrecy rules that restrict their public release. But Susan, this is a pretty significant development. Um, It can also be hard to sometimes gauge where these various legal developments are going to fall in level of significance because there are now and likely will be more of them. So give us your sense of how we should be thinking about this particular court ruling. And, you know, we'll remember, too, that Donald Trump's tax returns are kind of, you know, they're sort of like, you know, the Bigfoot, except we know it exists, right, in Trump lore. Like, everyone knows it's there, but no one's actually seen it. Bigfoot's the wrong example. It's Are really you a doubting that Bigfoot is real, Shane? Um, well, you know, I can neither confirm nor deny that, Ben. But it's <laughs> You can ask the CIA director. He doesn't make calls. Oh my God. I'm totally, if I have an interview with him, I'm totally going to be like, where are the aliens? It's for real. <laughs> I think it's worth kind of just reminding people about sort of the Mazars case and where we've been thus far. Um, so essentially, uh, the New York District's Attorney's Office, um, as part of this sprawling investigation into the Trump Organization, um, sort of uh, uh, an investigation that began with the uh, Stormy Daniels, Michael Cohen hush money payments, right, that there was a federal prosecution, there was also state prosecution elements of that, had been attempting to get uh, Trump's tax returns and also like a, a, a general um, category of financial documents and sort of communication. So we say Trump tax returns is sort of shorthand, but it's actually like a broader set of uh, financial documents from this third party company that had done done business for the Trump organization. Um, And Trump had asserted essentially this like astonishingly broad claim of immunity, kind of saying like, I'm president, you can't do this, F off. Um, And last July, the Supreme Court had pretty firmly swatted that back and basically said, yeah, this like broad immunity thing isn't going to fly. But you might have a claim of sort of a more narrow claim related to the subpoenas. So we're going to send it back down to the lower courts. So you can you can sort of re-argue this sort of narrower claim and see what happens. Um, and essentially what happened is that the clock ran out. Um, and so by the time that the case uh, the case came back up to the court, Trump wasn't president anymore. Um, and so I think what we're seeing here is the consequences of whenever, you know, now Trump cannot avail himself of any of those arguments or protections anymore. Um, and so basically the Supreme Court said like, yeah, yeah, have at it. You're like, you're just a regular person now. Um, and so, you know, that's, it, it sort of closes the book on, on the interesting and difficult legal questions about presidential immunity and investigating presidents while they're in office. And this is sort of the court saying, all right, we're done with that part of the story. Um, now there's the question of what does it actually mean that the New York DA's office is actually going to get these tax returns? And one, as you mentioned, there's grand jury secrecy rules. So it's not as though all of a sudden this is going to come out to the public. I do think that it raises the likelihood that we will see some kind of criminal charges or criminal prosecutions in New York. Doesn't make it a slam dunk. It was that's it's always been a possibility, but like it, it advances that um, uh, really just because. Uh, every single time we've gotten substantial um, financial documents from Donald Trump or the Trump organization, there has been lots and lots of indications of irregularity. Um, and indications of irregularity often are indications of some sort of, you know, criminal activity or, or, or at least civil violations, right? So that's like, well, that's the leap that we're making. You know, so so we don't know what's in there, but I, I do think it sort of, it makes it more likely we're going to see something um, out of New York, um, which I think has some interesting impacts, uh, sort of it raises some interesting questions. Um, one, if New York does have some kind of prosecution of Trump or the Trump family or the Trump organization, does that reduce pressure at the federal level and on DOJ, right? So to the extent that there is going to be lots and lots of pressure on Garland, uh, you know, to investigate, uh, you know, to bring charges, to have some sort of accountability at the federal level, um, will they be able to say like, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, the, the sort of New York is taking that on or there's sort of there's an active investigation 
investigation in the way we saw states sort of say, yeah, yeah, like we're stepping back because the feds are investigating here. Um, so I, I think that's one interesting question, exactly how that um, that interplay works out. Um, it, it could also have the sort of the, the converse effect. Um, and the more information is unearthed in the, in the process of this state level investigation um, and, and goes to the public, uh, that might, you know, sort of raise uh, raise calls for, for DOJ to actually do uh, an investigation. Then there's the separate question of, is it a good thing for New York to prosecute Trump? And here's where I actually, I have to say, it, it gets a little bit uncomfortable. Um, Cy Vance has not said whether or not he's running for re-election, but he's made this pretty overtly political. He talks about it in overtly political terms. Whenever the Supreme Court ruling came out, he tweeted like the work continues and he clearly is wrapping his political reputation around this prosecution. Trump released a statement, not on Twitter, because he doesn't have a Twitter account anymore, but like released his official former presidential office statement saying the greatest political witch hunt of all time. One thing that will be challenging is if New York does decide to proceed with this prosecution, um, are they going to make any efforts to make clear that this isn't about politics um, and to sort of attempt to, I, I don't know, rebuild, uh, you know, some of those perceptions of this is this is legitimate, apolitical law enforcement, because otherwise we could be getting into a world in which, like, you know, Texas goes after, you know, Democratic presidents, right? And we're like, we're, we're walking down the same paths of erosion that we've had our hair on fire about for the past four years. So that's not, there, there aren't easy answers and it all ultimately depends on the evidence. But I, I still think there's, there's a lot of complexity if, uh, if we do end up walking down that path. Yeah, I, I think it's good to raise the question, Susan, but I also feel like I feel like it would be inappropriate not to allow states to pursue criminal charges if this guy has committed fouls against state laws. And, you know, his businesses uh, or his foundation or whatever, those are New York state entities. So it's not this isn't about unlike the Georgia case, although I still you know, a state election is a state matter and I think they should hold him accountable. but the Georgia case has to do with him in the presidency. The New York case does not. And so I feel differently about it on those grounds. I guess my question about these tax returns, though, is after all this Sturm and Drang, how much don't we already know? I mean, the New York Times got a whole lot of tax returns and they did a massive investigative project on this. So, I mean, do we expect that there's anything that we haven't already seen in the New York Times? Nope. Um, but they serve very different purposes. So the New York Times' job is to get information to the public. That is not admissible evidence in court. That's, I think, ultimate hearsay, right? If the, the New York Times... But it is admissible in an impeachment trial. It sure is. The New York Times says there's a document that says that Donald Trump's taxes contain the following information, right? If you're a prosecutor and you want to use that information, you have to have an authenticated set of documents that are, you know, more than that something that somebody gave to the New York Times. And so I don't think we're going to learn anything new from this, but I do think that the likelihood that, you know, that if you're trying to make a case not having these documents is a problem. Having these documents is a necessity. I agree with everything Susan said about the uncomfortable nature of this. I also think it cannot be the rule that you're not indictable when you're president because you're immune while you're president. You're not indictable mm -hmm. after you leave office at the federal level, because we have a very strong norm against prosecuting former presidents at the federal level, and you're not indictable at the state level because state prosecutors suck and act like politicians because they're elected officials. Something's got to give there unless we want to hold that the president is, in fact, above the law in some meaningful sense. And I think, you know, the New York State case and the Georgia case, by the way, where the prosecutor has not engage, though elected, she has not engaged in any of the shenanigans that either Cy Vance or Tish James, uh, you know, in New York have have really dabbled in. The Fulton County prosecutor, at least so far, has, I think, been much more careful. 
all that said, I do think that the New York State case is probably for, you know, the most attractive vehicle for other than perhaps the Georgia case for people who, you know, want to see Trump held criminally accountable. Yeah, so just a minor point on that. I agree with everything Ben just said. I that you're right. We we cannot have this sort of area in which uh, you know there's no accountability because of the possibility of political perception. But this is exactly the um, the situation which we would want prosecutors to be really good at observing certain forms, right? Be really, really careful the way they talk about these things and attempt to sort of message this even-handed administration of justice. And so I think the part that deepens the discomfort is like, this is sort of a necessary thing and, and this necessary uh, tension that's going to exist. And so it's, it's really... Um, uh, rather than seeing somebody like Vance trying to alleviate that by being really, really careful and responsible instead going in the other direction. I, I think that's the part that um, that really sort of heightens the uh, like the, the anxiety or discomfort of the moment. All right, let's go on to object lessons. Uh, ben, do you want to go first? I do. So today, a friend of the pod sent me a copy of the appellee's, appellant's brief in this year's Shakespeare mock trial, filed by one Andrew Weissman, by the way, uh, late of, of Mueller investigation fame. And it contains the following passage. The entire kingdom, that's the kingdom of Sicily, witnessed the oracular report that motivated Paulina's speech and actions. As instructed, Paulina made sure that Leontes had seemed to sufficiently repent before announcing Hermione's survival. Leontes insists that Paulina's appeal should be denied as she is a, quote, cruel and malicious member of Cecilia Profundo, yet provides no evidence to contradict her adherence to the Oracle's guidance that served to protect Leontes from his own worst impulses. And this uh, statement about Cecilia Profunda is cited to Jack Goldsmith, our non-unitary executive published in Lawfare on July 30th, 1617. The brief is in addition, in many other ways, charming, but I think this is the first time that Lawfare has been cited in the Shakespeare mock trial. <laughs> Which wait? Which play was this event? Was it Merchant of No? Not Merchant of Venice. That would be what was it? It is Paulina v. Leontes, King of Sicilia et anno, on writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court of Sicily. God, such nerds. Yes, that's the one of the geekiest <laughs> fundraisers in all of Washington. All right, Tammy, <laughs> what's your object? Okay, so one of the podcasts that I like to listen to on national security that is not our wonderful podcast is one is the Texas National Security Reviews podcast, Horns of a Dilemma. And I like it because it's connected to University of Texas, Austin. So it gets me into like a bunch of academic, especially diplomatic history that I wouldn't otherwise get access to. And one of the recent episodes was a recording of a book talk about a new book about Henry Kissinger. Now, you might think, why do we need another book about Henry Kissinger? Hasn't he written enough? <laughs> but uh, but this is a really, really interesting book, which now that I've heard the author give his talk, I look forward to um, reading. This is Thomas Schwartz from Vanderbilt University, and he wrote uh, a book about Henry Kissinger as a political biography, and he went back through not just all the diplomatic papers and presidential libraries and, and so on, but he went through the Nixon tapes and he went through old newscasts, the evening news broadcasts, to see the way Kissinger wanted to be portrayed but, and the way he was portrayed in the public. And the picture that he develops of Henry Kissinger is fascinating, of a guy who, in Schwartz's view, is less of a geopolitical strategist and much more of a domestic political strategist who is valued by Nixon and Nixon's partner 
in sustaining political support for Nixon during a very, as you know, fraught time um, by kind of delivering and framing and packaging foreign policy achievements in a way that redound first to the benefit of the beleaguered president, and then after he resigns to Kissinger himself. Um, so I urge everybody to give a listen to this episode of Horns of a Dilemma and uh, to check out Thomas Schwartz's book, Henry Kissinger and American Power, a Political Biography. I am fascinated with the celebrity of Henry Kissinger. There's no equal to it in American foreign policy. Like he's a unique figure for that reason. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe this is why you're paying so much attention to Bill Burns, man. You think he's going to be the next celebrity foreign policy rock star? Oh, no, um, no, 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 no. I went on record <laughs> saying no to that one. <laughs> um, it was interesting. Schwartz said that like all the rumors about all the society page coverage of Kissinger as a ladies man was basically BS. That Kissinger was already seriously involved with the woman who became his second wife, and this was just part of cultivating the image. Hmm. It sounds like a, a certain former president that I know. Hmm. Maybe John Barron did PR for Henry Kissinger. Well, hmm. that'll be a subject for another podcast because we've reached the end of this one, you guys. Rational Security oh. is, of course, a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find um, commemorative Henry Kissinger Playboy bunny buttons at, uh, didn't he date oh, a Playboy bunny? Uh, didn't he? Yes. He did, right? I'm not making this up. Yeah, maybe He's, not. Maybe this was all part of the faux. Yes, uh, it was all a ruse. It was all a CIA disinformation operation. He was always faithful to her. He was just pretending to date the Playboy bunny for image purposes. <laughs> She was a very nice lady. Um, you can find those anyway at henrykissinger.lawfare.mythology. Um, store. store. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security, where you can nominate us for our list that we should be on. Uh, make them nice, please. Uh, you can still find us on Facebook, of course. When you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It helps us out and helps others find the podcast, too. We appreciate it. Our audio engineer this week is Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo. Very nice to have you back, Ian. Our show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Music this week by Ben Wittes and his new chamber ensemble, The Reluctant Intelligentsia. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah. That does sound like a band you would form, by the way. Just saying. It's a good name for a band, Reluctant Intelligentsia. Right? It is. It works. I think Don't give many ideas. I think you should embrace your new status. And if you can't embrace it, build it into a <laughs> mythology like Henry Kissinger. Hey, glam rock. I'm you and Elton totally. John, man. I am totally. I, I would I would join a band called Reluctant Intelligentsia. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, we'll get Sophia Yan to, you know, hand it up. On behalf of my good friends, Tamara Kaufman-Wittis, Ben Wittis, and Susan Hennessy, I'm Shane Harris. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.